Whether you think of him as the godfather to Black Mirror, or you know him as the author of Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury is one of America's undisputed short story masters. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and this week on Selected Shorts, we celebrate 100 years of Bradbury with another big dreamer, the writer Neil Gaiman. Stay right where you are. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Writer Ray Bradbury had a vast imagination. Often, he created work, such as The Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451, that played with big, fantastical premises. He also wrote realistic works, including Dandelion Wine, which touched on childhood and small-town life with loving detail. Regardless of his idiom, though, Bradbury knew that substance needed to trump style. His stories, no matter how wild or complex, were always designed to hook the audience and keep them. And as a show keenly aware of literary anniversaries, Selected Shorts was very much looking forward to Bradbury's centennial. The host of our recent Ray Bradbury celebration, Neil Gaiman, elaborated from the stage at Symphony Space. We're here to celebrate the life and the work of one of the great storytellers, the late novelist, the screenwriter, the poet, the short story writer, Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was born in 1920 and he died in 2012, at the age of 91. We planned this tribute for what would have been Ray's centennial. But as it turned out, (laughs) the year 2020 presented challenges in regard to gathering together in large groups and celebrating anything. There were many things that I was heartbroken about, many things that made me sad in 2020, but not being able to be on this stage, having to actually cancel the event, really hurt. And that here we are three years later, able to celebrate, goes a long way towards healing that. In any case, there is no bad time to celebrate one of history's most consequential writers. That was Neil Gaiman kicking things off during our live show celebrating Ray Bradbury. The first Bradbury story we'll hear is a vision of the future titled There Will Come Soft Rains. Given our intimate relationship with AI and digital assistance, as well as our fears about the climate, it feels much less like science fiction now than it did when he wrote it in 1950. Reading Bradbury's story There Will Come Soft Rains is Yatide Badaki, She's an actor who has appeared in series including This Is Us and films such as Rise. There will come soft rains. In the living room, the voice clock sang. Tick-tock, seven o'clock, time to get up, time to get up, seven o'clock. 
as if it were afraid that nobody would. The morning house lay empty. The clock ticked on, repeating and repeating its sounds into the emptiness. Seven, nine, breakfast time, seven, nine. In the kitchen, the breakfast stove gave a hissing sigh and ejected from its warm interior eight pieces of perfectly brown toast, eight eggs sunny side up, 16 slices of bacon, two coffees, and two cool glasses of milk. Today is August 4th, 2026, said a second voice from the kitchen ceiling, in the city of Allendale, California. It repeated the date three times for memory's sake. Today is Mr. Featherstone's birthday. Today is the anniversary of Tilita's marriage. Insurance is payable, as are the water, gas, and light bills. Somewhere in the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. Eight one, tick tock, eight one o'clock, off to school, off to work, run, run, eight one. But no door slammed. No carpets took the soft tread of rubber heels. It was raining outside. The weather box on the front door sang quietly. Rain, rain, go away, rubbers, raincoats for today. And the rain tapped on the empty house, echoing. Outside, the garage chimed and lifted its door to reveal the waiting car. After a long wait, the door swung down again. At 8.30, the eggs were shriveled and the toast was like stone. An aluminum wedge scraped them into the sink where hot water whirled them down a metal throat which digested and flushed them away to the distant sea. The dirty dishes were dropped into a hot washer and emerged twinkling dry. 9.15, sang the clock. Time to clean. Out of warrens in the wall, tiny robot mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with the small cleaning animals, all rubber and metal. They thudded against chairs, whirling their mustached runners, kneading the rug naps, sucking gently at hidden dust. Then, like mysterious invaders, they popped into their burrows. Their pink electric eyes faded. The house was clean. Ten o'clock. The sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone in a city of rubble and ashes. This was the one house left standing. At night, the ruined city gave off a radioactive glow which could be seen for miles. 10.15, the garden sprinklers whirled up in golden founts, filling the soft morning air with scatterings of brightness. The water pelted window panes, running down the charred west side where the house had been burned evenly free of its white paint. The entire west face of the house was black, save for five places here, the silhouette and paint of a man mowing a lawn. Here, as in a photograph, a woman bent to pick flowers, still farther over, their images burned on wood in one titanic instant, a small boy, hands flung into the air, higher up, the image of a thrown ball, and opposite him, a girl, hands raised to catch a ball, which never came down. The five spots of paint the man, the woman, the children, the ball remained. The rest was a thin, charcoal layer. The gentle sprinkler rain filled the garden with falling light. Until this day, how well the house had kept its peace. How carefully it had inquired, who goes there, what's the password? And getting no answer from lonely foxes and whining cats, it had shut up its windows and drawn shades in an old maidenly preoccupation with self-protection which bordered on a mechanical paranoia. 
It quivered at each sound the house did. If a sparrow brushed a window, the shade snapped up. The bird startled, flew off. No, not even a bird must touch this house. The house was an altar with 10,000 attendants, big, small, servicing, attending, inquires. But the gods had gone away, and the ritual of the religion continued senselessly, uselessly. 12 noon, a dog whined, shivering on the front porch. The front door recognized the dog voice and opened. The dog, once huge and fleshy, but now gone to bone and covered with sores, moved in and through the house, tracking mud. Behind it whirred angry mice, angry at having to pick up mud, angry at inconvenience. For not a leaf fragment blew under the door, but what the wall panels flipped open and the copper scrap rats flashed swiftly out. The offending dust, hair or paper, seized in miniature steel jaws, was raced back to the burrows. There, down tubes which fed into the cellar, it was dropped into the sighing vent of an incinerator which sat like evil bow in a dark corner. The dog ran upstairs, hysterically yelping to each door, at last realizing, as the house realized, that only silence was here. It sniffed the air and scratched the kitchen door. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes, which filled the house with a rich baked odor and the scent of maple syrup. The dog frothed at the mouth, lying at the door, sniffing its eyes turned to fire. It ran wildly in circles, biting at its tail, spun in a frenzy, and died. It lay in the parlor for an hour. Two o'clock, sang a voice. Delicately, sensing decay at last, the regiments of mice hummed out as softly as blown gray leaves in an electrical wind. 2.15, the dog was gone. In the cellar, the incinerator glowed suddenly, and a world of sparks leaped up the chimney. 2.35, bridge tables sprouted from patio walls. Playing cards fluttered onto pads in a shower of pips. Martinis manifested on an oaken bench with egg salad sandwiches. Music played, but the tables were silent and the cards untouched. At four o'clock, the tables folded like great butterflies back through the paneled walls. 4.30, the nursery walls glowed. Animals took shape. Yellow giraffes, blue lions, pink antelopes, lilac panthers cavorting in crystal substance. The walls were glass. They looked out upon color and fantasy. Hidden films clocked through well-oiled sprockets, and the walls lived. The nursery floor was woven to resemble a crisp cereal meadow. Over this ran aluminum roaches and iron crickets, and in the hot, still air, butterflies of delicate red tissue wavered among the sharp aromas of animal spores. There was the sound like a great matted yellow hive of bees within a dark bellows, the lazy bumble of a purring lion. And there was the patter of okapi feet and the murmur of a fresh jungle rain like other hooves falling upon the summer starched grass. Now the walls dissolved into distances of parched weed, mile on mile and warm, endless sky. The animals drew away into thorn breaks and water holes. It was the children's hour. Five o'clock, the bath filled with clear hot water. 
six, seven, eight o'clock. The dinner dishes manipulated like magic tricks, and in the study a click in the metal stand opposite the hearth where a fire now blazed up warmly, a cigar popped out, half an inch of soft gray ash on it, smoking, waiting. Nine o'clock. The beds warmed their hidden circuits, for nights were cool here. Nine five. A voice spoke from the steady ceiling. Mrs. McClellan, which poem would you like this evening? The house was silent. The voice said at last, Since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Quiet music rose to back the voice. Sarah Teasdale, as I recall, your favorite. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground, and swallows circling with their shimmering sound, and frogs in the pools singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And Spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The fire burned on the stone hearth, and the cigar fell away into a mound of quiet ash on its tray. The empty chairs faced each other between the silent walls, and the music played. At ten o'clock, the house began to die. The wind blew, a falling tree bough crashed through the kitchen window, cleaning solvent bottle shattered over the stove. The room was ablaze in an instant. Fire, screamed a voice. The house lights flashed, water jumps, shot water from the ceiling, but the solvent spread on the linoleum, licking, eating under the kitchen door, while the voices took it up in chorus. Fire, fire, fire. The house tried to save itself. Doors sprang tightly shut, but the windows were broken by the heat, and the wind blew and sucked upon the fire. The house gave ground as the fire in ten billion angry sparks moved with flaming ease from room to room, and then up the stairs, while scurrying water rats squeaked from the walls, pistoled their water, and ran for more, and the walls sprayed, let down showers of mechanical rain, but too late. Somewhere sighing. A pump shrugged to a stop. The quenching rain ceased. The reserve water supply, which had filled baths and washed dishes for many quiet days, was gone. The fire crackled up the stairs. It fed upon Picassos and Matisses in the upper halls like delicacies, baking off the oily flesh, tenderly crisping the canvases into black shavings. Now the fire lay in beds stood in windows, changed the colors of drapes, and then reinforcements. From attic trapdoors, blind robot faces peered down with faucet mouths gushing green chemical. The fire backed off as even an elephant must at the sight of a dead snake. Now there were 20 snakes whipping over the floor, killing the fire with a clear cold venom of green froth. But the fire was clever. It had sent flame outside the house up through the attic to the pumps there, an explosion. The attic brain which directed the pumps was shattered into bronze shrapnel on the beams. The fire rushed back into every closet and felt of the clothes hung there. 
The house shuddered, oak bone on bone, its bared skeleton cringing from the heat, its wire, its nerves revealed as if a surgeon had torn the skin off to let the red veins and capillaries quiver in the scalded air. Help, help, fire, run, run. Heat snapped mirrors like the first brittle winter ice, and the voices wailed, fire, fire, run, run, like a tragic nursery rhyme. A dozen voices high, low, like children dying in a forest alone, alone, and the voices fading as the wires popped their sheathings like hot chestnuts. One, two, three, four, five voices died. In the nursery, the jungle burned. Blue lions roared. Purple giraffes bounded off. The panthers ran in circles, changing color, and ten million animals running before the fire vanished off toward a distant steaming river. Ten more voices died. In the last instant, under the fire avalanche, other choruses oblivious could be heard announcing the time, playing music, cutting the lawn by remote control mower, or setting an umbrella frantically out and in, the slamming and opening front door, a thousand things happening like a clock shop when each clock strikes the hour insanely before or after the other, a scene of maniac confusion, yet unity, singing, screaming, a few last cleaning mice darting bravely out to carry the horrid ashes away, and one voice with sublime disregard for the situation read poetry aloud in the fiery study until all the film spools burned, until all the wires withered and the circuits cracked. The fire burst the house and let it slam flat down, puffing out skirts of spark and smoke. In the kitchen, an instant before the rain of fire and timber, the stove could be seen making breakfasts at a psychopathic rate. Ten dozen eggs, six loaves of toast, 20 dozen bacon strips, which eaten by fire, started the stove working again, hysterically hissing. The crash, the attic smashing into kitchen and parlor, the parlor into cellar, cellar into subcellar, deep freeze, armchair, film tapes, circuits, beds, and all like skeletons thrown in a cluttered mound deep under smoke and silence. A great quantity of smoke. Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said over and over, again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heat, rubble, and steam. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is... That was Ray Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains, performed by Yatide Badaki. Again, here's Neil Gaiman from the stage. This story fascinates me in a lot of ways because Ray was thought of as one of the preeminent science fiction writers of his age. And yet, 
Ray was never really about prediction. Ray wasn't trying to get it right on any level other than what was poetry? What felt right? What kind of truth could he tell? And yet, in with that poetry, every now and then, Ray would get more right, I think, than even he knew. That was Neil Gaiman on stage at Symphony Space. When we return, Bradbury gets Mesozoic and takes up Needlepoint, too. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're continuing our celebration of Bradbury's centennial with a fantastical story titled The Foghorn. Performing the story is Javier Munoz, who has appeared in the title role of Hamilton and the lead of In the Heights on Broadway. He's also featured in series including Shadowhunters. And here is Munoz exploring the shadowy depths below in Ray Bradbury's The Foghorn. The Foghorn. Out there in the cold water far from land, we waited every night for the coming of the fog. And it came and we oiled the brass machinery and lit the fog light up in the stone tower, feeling like two birds in the gray sky. McDunn and I sent the light touching out, red, then white, then red again, to eye the lonely ships. And if they did not see our light, then there was always our voice the great deep cry of our foghorn shuddering through the rags of mist to startle the gulls away like decks of scattered cards and make the waves turn high and foam. It's a lonely life, but you're used to it now, aren't you? Asked McDunn. Yes, I said. You're a good talker, thank the Lord. Well, it's your turn on land tomorrow, he said, smiling, to dance the ladies and drink gin. What do you think, McDunn, when I leave you out here alone? On the mysteries of the sea. McDunn lit his pipe. It was a quarter past seven of a cold November evening. The heat on, the light switching its tail in two hundred directions, the foghorn bumbling in the high throat of the tower. There wasn't a town for a hundred miles down the coast, just a road which came lonely through the dead country to the sea, with few cars on it. A stretch of two miles of cold water out to our rock, and rare few ships. The mysteries of the sea, said McDunn thoughtfully. You know the ocean's the biggest damn snowflake ever. It rolls and swells a thousand shapes and colors, no two alike. Strange. One night, years ago, I was here alone, 
when all of the fish of the sea surfaced out there. Something made them swim in and lie in the bay, sort of trembling and staring up at the tower light going red, white, red, white across them so I could see their funny eyes. I turned cold. They were like a big peacock's tail moving out there until midnight. Then without so much as a sound, they slipped away. The million of them was gone. I kind of think maybe in some sort of way they came all those miles to worship. Strange. But think how the tower must look to them. Standing 70 feet above the water, the god light flashing out from it, and the tower declaring itself with a monster voice. They, they never came back, those fish. But don't you think for a while they thought they were in the presence? I shivered. I looked out at the long gray lawn of the sea, stretching away into nothing and nowhere. Oh, the sea's full. McDunn puffed his pipe nervously, blinking. He'd been nervous all day and hadn't said why. For all our energies and so-called submarines, it'll be 10,000 centuries before we set foot on the real bottom of the sunken lands and the fairy kingdoms there. And no real terror. Think of it. It's still the year 300,000 before Christ down under there. While we've paraded around with trumpets slopping off each other's countries and heads, they have been living beneath the sea 12 miles deep and cold in a time as old as a beard on a comet. Yes, it's an old world. Come on, I got something special I've been saving up to tell you. We ascended the 80 steps, talking and taking our time. At the top, McDunn switched off the room light so there'd be no reflection in the plate glass. The great eye of the light was humming, turning easily in its oiled socket. The foghorn was blowing steadily once every 15 seconds. Sounds like an animal, don't it? McDunn nodded to himself. A big, lonely animal crying in the night. Sitting here on the edge of ten million years, calling out to the deeps, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And the deeps do answer. Oh, yes, they do. You've been here now for three months, Johnny, so I better prepare you. About this time of year, he said, studying the murk and fog, something comes to visit the lighthouse. The swarms of fish, like you said? No, this is something else. I've been putting off telling you because you might think I'm daft. But tonight's the latest I can put it off, for if my calendar's marked right from last year, tonight's the night it comes. I won't go into detail. You'll have to see it for yourself. Just sit down there. If you want, tomorrow you can pack your duffel and take the motorboat into land and get your car parked there at the dinghy pier on the Cape and drive on back to some little inland town and keep your lights burning nights. I won't question or blame you. It's happened three years now, and this is the only time anyone's been here with me 
to verify it. You wait and watch. Half an hour passed with only a few whispers between us. When we grew tired of waiting, McDunn began describing some of his ideas to me. He had some theories about the foghorn itself. One day, many years ago, a man walked along and stood in the sound of the ocean and on a cold, sunless shore and said, We need a voice to call across the water to warn ships. I'll make one. I'll make a voice that is like an empty bed beside you all night long and like an empty house when you open the door and like the trees in autumn with no leaves, a sound like the birds flying south, crying, and a sound like November wind and the sea on the hard, cold shore. I'll make a sound that's so alone that no one can miss it, that whoever hears it will weep in their souls, and hearths will seem warmer, and being inside will seem better to all who hear it in the distant towns. I'll make me a sound and an apparatus, and they'll call it a foghorn. And whoever hears it will know the sadness of eternity and the briefness of life. The foghorn blew. I made up that story, <laughs> said McDunn quietly, to try to explain why this thing keeps coming back to the lighthouse every year. The foghorn calls, I think, and it comes. But, I said, said McDunn, there. He nodded out to the deeps. Something was swimming towards the lighthouse tower. It was a cold night, as I said. The high tower was cold. The light coming and going and the foghorn calling and calling through the raveling mist. You couldn't see far and you couldn't see plain, but... There was the deep sea moving on its way about the night earth, flat and quiet, the color of gray mud. And here were the two of us alone in the high tower, and there, far out at first, was a ripple, followed by a wave, a rising, a bubble, a bit of froth. And then, from the surface of the cold sea came a head, a large head, dark-colored, with immense eyes, and then a neck, and then not a body, but more neck and more. The head rose a full 40 feet above the water on a slender and beautiful neck. Only then did the body, like a little island of black coral and shells and crayfish, drip up from the subterranean. There was a flicker of tail. In all, from head to tip of tail, I estimated the monster at 90 or 100 feet. I don't know what I said. I said something. Steady, boy, steady, whispered McDunn. It's impossible, I said. No, Johnny, we're impossible. It's like it always was ten million years ago. It hasn't changed. It's us and the 
land that have changed become impossible. Us. It swam slowly and with a great dark majesty out in the icy waters far away. The fog came and went about it, momentarily erasing its shape. One of the monster eyes caught and held and flashed back our immense light, red, white, red, white, like a disk held high and sending a message in primeval code. It was as silent as the fog through which it swam. It's a dinosaur of some sort, I crouched down, holding to the stair rail. Yes, one of the tribe. But they died out. No, only hid away in the deeps. Deep, deep down in the deepest deeps. Isn't that a word now, Johnny? A real word. It says so much. The deeps. There all the coldness and darkness and deepness in the world in a word like that. What'll we do? Do? We got our job. We can't leave. Besides, we're safer here than in any boat trying to get to land. That thing's as big as a destroyer and almost as swift. But here, why does it come here? The next moment I had my answer. The foghorn blew. And the monster answered. A cry came across a million years of water and mist, a cry so anguished and alone that it shuddered in my head and my body. The monster cried out at the tower. The foghorn blew. The monster roared again. The foghorn blew. The monster opened its great toothed mouth, and the sound that came from it was the sound of the foghorn itself. Lonely and vast and far away. The sound of isolation, a viewless sea, a cold night, apartness. That was the sound. Now, whispered McDunn, do you know why it comes here? I nodded all year long, Johnny. That poor monster lying far out, a thousand miles at sea and twenty miles deep, maybe, biding its time, perhaps a million years old, this one creature. Think of it, waiting a million years. Could you wait that long? Maybe it's the last of its kind. I sort of think that's true. Anyway, here come men on land and build this lighthouse five years ago and set up their foghorn and sound it and sound it out towards the place where you bury yourself in sleep and see memories of a world where there were thousands like yourself, but now you're alone, all alone in a world not made for you, a world where you have to hide. But the sound of the foghorn comes and goes, comes and goes, and you stir from the muddy bottom of the deeps, and your eyes open like lenses of two-foot cameras, and you move slow, slow, 
for you have the ocean sea on your shoulders, heavy. But that foghorn comes through a thousand miles of water, faint and familiar, and the furnace in your belly stokes up, and you begin to rise, slow, slow. You feed yourself on great slakes of cod and minnow, on rivers of jellyfish, and you rise slow through the autumn months, through September when the fog started, through October with more fog and the horn still calling you on, and then late in November, after pressurizing yourself day by day, a few feet higher every hour, you are near the surface and still alive. You've got to go slow. If you surfaced all at once, you'd explode, so it takes you all of three months to surface, and then a number of days to swim through the cold waters to the lighthouse. And there you are, out there, in the night, Johnny. The biggest damn monster in creation. And here's the lighthouse calling to you with a long neck like your neck sticking way up out of the water and a body like your body, and most important of all, a voice like your voice. Do you understand now, Johnny? Do you understand? The foghorn blew. The monster answered. I saw it all. I knew it all. The million years of waiting alone for someone to come back who never came back. The million years of isolation at the bottom of the sea. The insanity of time there. While the skies cleared of reptile birds, the swamps fried on the continental lands, the sloths and saber-tooths had their day and sank in tar pits, and men ran, men ran like white ants upon the hills. The foghorn blew. Last year, said McDonough. That creature swam round and round, round and round all night, not coming too near, puzzled, I'd say, afraid, maybe, and a bit angry after coming all this way. But the next day, unexpectedly, the fog lifted, the sun came out fresh, the sky was as blue as a painting, and the monster swam off away from the heat and the silence and didn't come back. I suppose it's been brooding on it for a year now, thinking it over from every which way. The monster was only a hundred yards off now, it and the foghorn crying at each other. As the lights hit them, the monster's eyes were fire and ice, fire and ice. That's life for you, said McDonough. Someone always waiting for someone who never comes home. Always someone loving something more than that thing loves them. And after a while, you want to destroy whatever that thing is so it can't hurt you no more. The monster was rushing at the lighthouse. The foghorn blew. Let's see what happens, said McDonough. He switched the foghorn off. 
The ensuing minute of silence was so intense that we could hear our hearts pounding in the glassed area of the tower, could hear the slow, greased turn of the light. The monster stopped and froze. Its great lantern eyes blinked. Its mouth gaped. It gave a sort of rumble like a volcano. It twitched its head this way and that, as if to seek the sounds now dwindled off in the fog. It peered at the lighthouse. It rumbled again. Then its eyes caught fire. It reared up, threshed the water, and rushed at the tower, its eyes filled with angry torment. McDunn, I cried, switch on the horn! McDunn fumbled with the switch, but even as he switched it on, the monster was rearing up. I had a glimpse of its gigantic paws, fish skin glittering in webs between the finger-like projections, clawing at the tower. The huge eye on the right side of its anguished head glittered before me like a cauldron into which I might drop screaming. The tower shook. The foghorn cried. The monster cried. It seized the tower and gnashed at the glass which shattered in upon us. McDunn seized my arm downstairs. The tower rocked, trembled, and started to give. The foghorn and the monster roared. We stumbled and half fell down the stairs. Quick! We reached the bottom as the tower buckled down towards us. We ducked under the stairs into the small stone cellar. There were a thousand concussions as the rocks rained down. The foghorn stopped abruptly. The monster crashed upon the tower. The tower fell. We knelt together, McDonough and I holding tight, while a world exploded. Then it was over. And there was nothing but darkness and the wash of the sea on the raw stones. That the other sound. Listen, said McDunn quietly. Listen. We waited a moment, and then I began to hear it. First a great vacuumed sucking of air, and then the lament, the bewilderment, the loneliness of the great monster folded over upon us, above us, so that the sickening reek of its body filled the air, a stone's thickness away from our cellar. The monster gasped and cried. The tower was gone. The light was gone. The thing that had called it across a million years was gone. And the monster was opening its mouth and sending out great sounds, the sounds of a foghorn, again and again. And ships far at sea, not finding the light, not seeing anything, but passing and hearing late that night must have thought, oh, there it is, the lonely sound, the lonesome bay horn, all's well, we've rounded the cape. And so it went for the rest of that night. The sun was hot and yellow the next afternoon when the rescuers came to dig us from our stoned undercellar. It fell apart is all, said McDunn gravely. <laughs> we had a few bad knocks from the waves and it just crumbled. He pinched my arm. 
There was nothing to see. The ocean was calm, the sky was blue, the only thing was a great algaic stink from the green matter that covered the fallen tower stones and the shore rocks. Flies buzzed about. The ocean washed empty on the shore. The next year they built a new lighthouse. But by that time, I had a job in the little town and a wife in a good small warm house that glowed yellow on autumn nights, the doors locked, the chimney puffing smoke. As for McDunn, he was master of the new lighthouse, built to his own specifications, out of steel-reinforced concrete. <laughs> Just in case, he said. The new lighthouse was ready in November. I drove down alone one evening late and parked my car and looked across the gray waters and listened to the new horn sounding once, twice, three, four times a minute far out there by itself. The monster never came back. It's gone away, said McDunn. It's gone back to the deeps. It's learned you can't love anything too much in this world. It's gone into the deepest deeps to wait another million years. Ah, the poor thing. Waiting out there and waiting out there while man comes and goes on this pitiful little planet. Waiting and waiting. I sat in my car, listening. I couldn't see the lighthouse or the lights standing out in the lonesome bay. I could only hear the horn, the horn, the horn. It sounded like the monster calling. I sat there wishing there was something I could say. That was The Foghorn by Ray Bradbury, performed by Javier Munoz. Such a misunderstood monster. One of the things our crew talked about backstage was just how much loneliness Munoz was able to conjure in his reading. It's a pretty remarkable feat. On the page, there's lots of fear and destruction, but Munoz really makes you feel for that solitary, ancient being. Neil Gaiman, the live host of our Bradbury show, shared an anecdote about The Foghorn. Ray loved dinosaurs. I met Ray for the first time at what I think was his 70th birthday party, which was held in the Natural History Museum in London. And of course, we celebrated Ray and sang happy birthday, and he blew out his cake underneath the skeleton of an enormous dinosaur. That was Neil Gaiman on stage at Symphony Space. Our final story in this show, dedicated to Ray Bradbury, is embroidery. Bradbury is capable of laying out, in simple yet poetic language, lifelike scenes that draw attention to the routine activities he depicts. Embroidery does just that. 
But if the story were simply about the needlepoint, well, we probably wouldn't be here celebrating Bradbury. Instead, we might be holding an event in a strip mall store called, I don't know, Yarn World. Performing the story is Kirsten Vangsness, an actor best known as Penelope Garcia on Criminal Minds, who also writes and stars in her own theater pieces, including Mess. And now, Vangsness reads Embroidery by Ray Bradbury. Embroidery. The dark porch air in the late afternoon was full of needle flashes, like a movement of gathered silver insects in the light. The three women's mouths twitched over their work, their bodies lay back and then imperceptibly forward so that the rocking chairs tilted and murmured. Each woman looked to her own hands, as if quite suddenly she had found her heart beating there. What time is it? Ten minutes to five. Gotta get up in a minute and shell those peas for dinner. But, said one of them, oh, yes, I forgot. How foolish of me. The first woman paused, put down her embroidery and needle, and looked through the open porch door, through the warm interior of the quiet house, to the silent kitchen, there upon the table, seeming more like symbols of domesticity than anything she had ever seen in her life, lay the mound of fresh-washed peas in their neat, resilient jackets waiting for her fingers to bring them into the world. Go haul them if it'll make you feel good, said the second woman. No, said the first. I won't. I just won't. The third woman sighed. She embroidered a rose, a leaf, a daisy on a green field. The embroidery needle rose and vanished. The second woman was working on the finest, most delicate piece of embroidery of them all, deftly poking, finding, and returning the quick needle upon innumerable journeys. Her quick black glance was on each motion, a flower, a man, a road, a sun, a house. The scene grew under her hand, a miniature beauty, perfect in every threaded detail. It seems at times like this that it's always your hands you turn to, she said, and the others nodded enough to make the rockers rock again. I believe, said the first lady, that our souls are in our hands, for we do everything to the world with our hands. Sometimes I think we don't use our hands half enough. It's certain we don't use our heads. They all peered more intently at what their hands were doing. Yes, said the third lady. When you look back on a whole lifetime, it seems like you don't remember faces so much as hands and what they did. They recounted to themselves the lids they had lifted, the doors they had opened and shut, the flowers they had picked, the dinners they had made all with quick or slow fingers as was their manner or custom. Looking back, you saw a flurry of hands, like a magician's dream, doors popping wide, taps turned, brooms wielded, children spanked. The flutter of pink hands was the only sound. The rest was a dream without voices. No supper to fix tonight or tomorrow night or the next night after that, said the third lady. No windows to open or shut. No coal to shovel in the basement furnace next winter. No papers to clip cooking articles out of. And suddenly, they were crying. The tears rolled softly down their faces and fell onto the material upon which their fingers twitched. This won't help things, 
Said the first lady at last, putting the back of her thumb to each under eyelid. She looked at her thumb and it was wet. Now look what I've done, cried the second lady, exasperated. The other stopped and peered over. The second lady held out her embroidery. There was the scene, perfect. Except that while the embroidered yellow sun shone down upon the embroidered green field and the embroidered brown road curved toward an embroidered pink house, the man standing on the road had something wrong with his face. I'll just have to rip out the whole pattern, practically, to fix it right, said the second lady. What a shame. They all stared intently at the beautiful scene with the flaw in it. The second lady began to pick away at the thread with her little deft scissors flashing. The pattern came out thread by thread. She pulled and yanked almost viciously. The man's face was gone. She continued to seize at the threads. What are you doing? Asked the other woman. They leaned and saw what she had done. The man was gone from the road. She had taken him out entirely. They said nothing but returned to their own tasks. What time is it? Asked someone. Five minutes to five. Is it supposed to happen at five o'clock? Yes. And they're not sure what it'll do to anything, really, when it happens? No, not sure. Why didn't we stop them before it got this far and this big? It's twice as big as ever before. No, ten times, maybe a thousand. This isn't like the first one or the dozen later ones. This is different. Nobody knows what it might do when it comes next. They waited on the porch and the smell of the roses and cut grass. What time is it now? One minute to five. The needles flashed silver fire. They swam like a tiny school of metal fish in the darkening summer air. Far away, a mosquito sound and then something like a tremor of drums. The three women cocked their heads, listening. We won't hear anything, will we? They say not. Perhaps we're foolish. Perhaps we'll go right on after five o'clock, shelling peas, opening doors, stirring soups, washing dishes, making lunches, peeling oranges. My, how we'll laugh to think we were frightened by an old experiment. They smiled a moment at each other. It's five o'clock. At these words, hushed, they all busied themselves. Their fingers darted. Their faces were turned down to the motions they made. They made frantic patterns. They made lilacs and grass and trees and houses and rivers and the embroidered cloth. They said nothing, but you could hear their breath in the silent porch air. Thirty seconds passed. The second woman sighed finally and began to relax. I think I just will go shell those peas for supper, she said. I but she hadn't had time to even lift her head. Somewhere at the side of her vision, she saw the world brighten and catch fire. She kept her head down, for she knew what it was. She didn't look up, nor did the others, and in the last instant their fingers were flying. They didn't glance about to see what was happening to the country, the town, this house, or even this porch. They were only staring down at the design in their flickering hands. The second woman watched an embroidered flower go. She tried to embroider it back in, but it went. And then the road vanished in the blades of grass. She watched a fire 
in slow motion almost catch upon the embroidered house and unshingle it and pull each threaded leaf from the small green tree and the hoops she saw the sun itself pulled apart and then designed and then the fire caught upon the moving point of the needle where it still flashed. She watched the fire come along her fingers and arms and body untwisting the yarn of her being so painstakingly that she could see it in all of its devilish beauty, yanking out the pattern from the material at hand, what it was doing to the other women or the furniture or the elm tree in the yard she never knew. For now, yes, now, it was plucking at the white embroidery of her flesh, the pink thread of her cheeks, and at last it found her heart, a soft red rose sewn with fire, and it burned the flesh, embroidered petals away. One by delicate one. You just heard Embroidery by Ray Bradbury, performed by Kirsten Vangsness. That one sneaks up on you, doesn't it? What starts off as a simple scene of friends and their hobbies becomes something much more haunting. And like many of Bradbury's stories, that one stays with you. I can't tell you how pleasurable it's been to rediscover Bradbury as both a reader and a listener. Many of us read him for the first time when we were young. I distinctly remember my paperback copy of The Illustrated Man, which I read sprawled out in the back of our family station wagon, no seatbelts, of course, Reading him now, there's a chance to once again get that same mind-blown feeling. And also the feeling of how the world is really expansive in ways I'd never thought about before. So I remember that early version of myself when I read this, and I find myself nodding at all Bradbury knew without exactly knowing, which is a trait that many wonderful writers have in common. Over the course of the last hour, I hope those of you unfamiliar with Bradbury start to see why he should be described as much more than just a writer of science fiction. Beyond the rocket ships and robots, Bradbury dealt with some of the most central and most difficult questions about what it means to be human in the modern age. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.